Any other band kids? We have any band kids here? If you're in the band, stand up. Just have Sawyer and Natalie. Anybody else in the band? All right. Nobody came to church after that contest, I guess. But they uh, had a contest in Springtown and uh, yesterday, and they had a really great showing. They got a Division One, and uh, Adelaide is one of the drum majors this year. She did a really great job. This is not coming on. There we go. And uh, it was it was a long day, and it was windy, and I think it affected. But we'll just carry on. If you've got your Bibles, today's a little bit different. Uh, we're going to be in two different passages, so they're up there on the screen. The title of the sermon is The Maturing and Patiently Ministering Church. The Maturing Church and the Patiently Ministering Church will be the title of our message from Ephesians chapter 4 and also from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This is the third of three sermons that I'm having to preach as part of my doctoral project at Southwestern Seminary. So you'll see people grading the sermons. Um, that makes me nervous. And so, uh, uh, again, just remember, I've got to make at least satisfactory on 90% of those or you have to hear the sermon again next week. That's just the warning I've given every week, and so far you all have graded accordingly, uh, for good or bad. On Wednesday nights, I'm teaching with Summer and Jesse Grubbs. We're teaching in the second grade classroom for Team Kid, so pray for us. But we're teaching in the classroom that Kent and Sindel teach their Sunday school class in each week, and they teach third and fourth graders in that, in that classroom. And so that third and fourth grade class, that had been taught by several... Raise your hand if you've taught in that third and fourth grade class. I don't want to leave anybody out, okay? Uh, so, so some of y'all have taught in there. But, you know, we think whenever people come back and walk through the building and they point to that room down there where Bill Little's class meets now, you know whose classroom they say that is. They say that's Hazel Lovett's classroom where all those third and fourth graders came through for all those years. And one thing she would do that's really neat is she would take a picture of every kid every year and she would put the photographs in a photo album. And you can still go up there and see all those pictures of all those kids that have come through that class. And so I was up there getting ready for my team kid class on Wednesday and I happened to open up those uh, photo albums and, and flip through them and of course start to see all these people now that we have here that are grown-ups. We've got uh, some adults who have children and I saw their picture and they have children now in that class or who, who have gone through that class. Uh, so they're in that photo collection and then some of their kids will be in that photo collection. And what you do when you look at those pictures, when you see a picture of Reed, you just think, my, my how, how they've grown and how they've matured. So I, I didn't, I just kind of flipped through some this morning. Dale, you can show some of these. Uh, Who have we got, Dale? So we got Brian Hampton. I, don't, I guess they're not here today. Brian's there. Show another one. Lindsay McClellan. Is that the bangs you were talking about or not? That's them. Okay. She said I had these. There's Rue Rogers. So today Rue was uh, elected to be the the uh, vice chairman of our deacons, but there's Rue when he was in the third or fourth grade there in the classroom. There's Cade Betts, all right. 
So that's awesome. No beard. That's what he looks like without a beard on. And then, does anyone remember the Plunk family? Do you all remember? Uh, so that's Mason Plunk. And I recognized his name. Of course, they were gone uh, before I got here. But they were here for a, a time. I don't know how, long they, how many years they were here. But Mason showed up a couple of months ago at the back door of the church, and he said, I have, I, he, was, he was for Ty Green's wedding. They had been over in Decatur, and so they were in the area. And Mason said, I really, I've told my wife so much about Olney, where I grew up, and where the church where I was baptized, I wanted her to see the church. And I said, well, hey, I'll just give you the tour. So we went through, and, and you know, some things were the same, and th some things were different. And he remembered where he had gone to Sunday school and had his picture taken. And so I'd asked him what they were doing. He and his wife were newlyweds, and they are working at a ministry, an apartment ministry in Oklahoma, at Oklahoma State University, where they, the, the apartment ministry is called Light Bearers. I've never heard of that before, but it's a, it's a ministry where when they have the, this ministry owns apartment complexes. And so you come and you live there, and they offer Bible studies and kind of a Christian atmosphere to live. And so they raise support for, mission, for their mission work there to the students at OSU. And isn't that neat to know that these students, that uh, some of those students are here in our church that have gone through that class. Now they're grown up, they've matured, and they're ministering here as teachers and as uh, team kid teachers, and they're uh, raising their families here, a part of our deacon body. And then also some that have gone off and they've, they have, they're, they're somewhere else and they're ministering. Uh, I was talking the other day to Ryan Bishop, my, my pastor friend over in Graham at Redeemer Church, where Reese and Kimberly Rogers are attending. And he said, man, that Reese Rogers, I don't, did we get a picture of him? Okay, he, he was up there. Uh, he said, that Reese Rogers, he said, man, he's mature beyond his years, and he's a blessing. And I said, First Baptist Church of Only product. I didn't tell him that I've heard some of the ladies who used to keep the nursery in the primaries said that he was the, the most obnoxious kid that had ever come through there, but, uh, <laughs> but he didn't stay that way, did he? He grew up, and we see uh, the kids, they, they grow up, and how do they grow up? It takes parents and grandparents and teachers and Sunday school teachers and pastors and friends. And as we are watching these kids grow up, we're expecting them to mature, aren't we? We're, and there's educators out there, I just caught Ed's eye. Whenever they're not progressing, we, we know we've got to do something to help them fill in the gaps. We are proactive about helping our children to mature. And we know whenever we're working with students and we're helping children grow into maturity, there are no shortcuts. It's 18 years or more of hard work, and we know that we will devote a good chunk of our lifetime to get them to the point of maturity. That's what we sign up for, isn't it? We sign up for that journey to take these little babies that we get at the hospital and we hold them like this or... Maybe they're brought to us or however we get them and we say, I'm going to commit to you to see this through. I want you to grow up. I want you to mature. I operate also under the assumption that if you are a member of this church, if you're involved in our fellowship here, just like you expect your children 
and you want your children to grow up and mature, and you're willing to put in the patient and hard work to see it happen, I'm assuming that you also want to grow and mature as a Christian. I'm assuming, why else would you be here? I mean, who got up this morning and said, I'm going to go to church today and I hope I don't change. I hope nothing happens. I hope I'm not challenged by the Word of God. I hope I just stay exact. No one does that. We come here because we know we need it. We come here because we know we need to hear the Word of God. We need to sit in our Sunday school class. We need to have conversations with one another where we challenge and we spur one another on to good works and good deeds and to greater faithfulness. It's hard to mature, but that's why we're here. And I'm also assuming that you want to be part of a mature church. Nobody got up this morning and said, you know, I hope when I get to church, I'm just amazed at how immature it is. Nobody said that. Nobody got up this morning. I mean, you might have been amazed at how immature it is when you got here, but nobody wants to be a part of an immature church. And so because we want to be in a mature church that really does minister the love of Jesus to other people, we've got to be willing to work for it. And I'm assuming that if you're here today, that's your desire. Now, maybe you drug yourself out of bed and and it was hard to get here, and it's been a long week, and it has been a long week. And it was raining outside, and you were afraid you were going to melt if you got wet. But you went anyway. You came anyway. And you came to church because you're willing to see what the Lord has to say from His Word to you, and you know that you need to be there with the other believers. You need that fellowship. We want to be mature. We want to be a patiently ministering church. How do we get there? Thankfully, as we look at these two scriptures today, we'll see what a maturing church and a patiently ministering church looks like. So the sermon, the structure of it, there are two parts. Our two parts of our sermon will answer two questions. Number one, how does the church become a healthy, maturing church? And number two, what does the healthy church do? So what does a mature church do? Or how do they get there? And then what does it look like as they're ministering in their community? Could you take me down just a hair, Dale? I'm having a hard time yelling when it feeds back. Okay. <laughs> so part one, look, take your Bibles and look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. And again, I'll just, I know we've got some visitors here. Uh, normally my preaching, I just start with a book and I just go through the book. But for my project, I've got to do something a little bit different. And so that's why we're kind of breaking from our norm uh, for this sermon. Usually I don't have you flip back and forth a lot. But Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 and 16 is where we'll start. This verse, if we're going to sum up the whole sum, uh, sermon in a sentence, or, or at least part one in a sentence, we would say Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, teaches us that the maturity of the church involves all the members of the body loving and speaking the truth of Scripture to one another, living the truth in front of one another, and loving one another as they grow in unity with Christ. So we want to know and understand from our verse that if we are going to become mature, what we do is we love, we speak the truth to one another in love, we live out a life of love in front of one another, with one another, and that's how we grow in unity with Christ. And then in part two, in our verse in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that verse will demonstrate to us that a maturing local church perseveres patiently, over time, committed to meeting the needs of those who even are failing to thrive 
and those who are struggling in the most basic aspects of spirituality. We don't quit on each other. Let's look at our first passage. Let's begin in verse 11. And he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. We want to grow up. We want to have the body built up in Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, instead of that, rather, speaking the truth in love, underline that, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, that's another good one to, to underline, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What's happening here in Ephesus? Paul is telling the Ephesian church to stop being so shallow and so easily deceived by false teachers. Rather, he says, speak to one another the truth in love. And when you do that, you will grow up in every way into Christ. There's a theologian named Peter O'Brien, and he says that the context of this verse, he explains that the Ephesian church was dealing with instability that was caused by false teaching. So they weren't maturing because they were not part of a stable church. The church was being constantly swayed by different false doctrines and was demonstrating immaturity and strife. This will happen in your fellowship. If one person gets up here and says, here's how it works, and then another person gets up here and says, no, here's how it works. Don't listen to him. And then another one gets up there and says, don't listen to either one of them. I'm telling you the truth. Do you think that's going to lead to maturity or immaturity? So the way that the apostle describes it is that the church was like a ship on the sea that was being tossed about by every wind and wave of doctrine. People were coming in and they were easily deceiving them and the people didn't know the truth. That's the problem, you see. If you want to become a maturing church, you have to know the truth. Here is the principle. The antidote for believers is to know and to speak the truth. The maturation of any church is dependent upon the pastor knowing and speaking the truth. Wrong. <laughs> I was tricking you. The, the maturation depends upon each member knowing and speaking the truth. It's up to us to know what the truth is and for us to speak the truth to one another. That's how we mature. We know the truth. But as important as knowing the truth, Paul tells the Ephesians it's always going to be a little twist, right? Paul tells the Ephesians it's not just about knowing the truth. And it's interesting to me because as a, as a preacher and, and having gone to school and, and rubbed elbows with a lot of people that are in the ministry and a lot of people that desire to be in the ministry, you run across some people, and maybe I've been one of these people, so I'm not saying, I'm not saying this with a pointed finger, but I think there are times whenever we get excited about doctrine and theology and we just become zoned in on the truth. 
And we start to really love the truth. And we start to love the truth more than we love people. And Paul says, you can't just love the truth. You can't just speak the truth. He says, it's also important how the truth is conveyed. The maturity is not just knowing the truth, but it's how you go about demonstrating and proclaiming the truth. Maturity is tied uh, to our conveyance of the truth in love. This is where the gospel comes into view in this passage. When we talk about the truth and when we talk about love. Doesn't the gospel come to us as a hard truth? Is the gospel easy to hear? No. But the message itself is a message of love. It's actually unloving to not tell people the gospel. I remember we've, we've talked about years ago the, the video that uh, one of the, is it Penn, is it Penn and Teller? It was, do you remember what his name is? Penn Gillette. Penn Gillette. Yeah, thank you, Summer. Uh, always good for a pop culture reference. <laughs> but Penn Gillette is a magician, has shows they do nationally, he has big shows in Las Vegas, and he was saying that one day after his show, there was a guy hanging around that had been to his show, and he said, I, knew, I saw he had a Bible in his hands, like I knew what he wanted to do, he wanted to give me the Bible. But he walked up, to, the guy said, hey, I just wanted to give you this, enjoyed your show, great show, uh, I'm a Christian, this, this Bible's very important to me, I just wanted to give you one. And it's funny because Penn Jillette's an atheist, doesn't believe the gospel, but you know what he said, he said, that, was, that guy was a good man. He said, that was a good man. Because if you really believe what the Bible says, if, if he really believes that I'm going to go to hell if he doesn't share the love of God with me, then what a great man to seek me out after a show and wait in line to tell me that he, he didn't want me to go to hell. Now, Pendulette would say, I don't believe in hell, I don't believe in all that, but he recognized that that man loved him. Just it would be unloving to not, if, if, a, if a bus was bearing down on somebody, wouldn't it be unloving not to push them out of the way? Because, you, you, they, because the, push, the push might hurt them, you know? It's unloving not to share the gospel, but it's very important how we share the gospel in love. But think about what we say to people when we preach the gospel. We say, this world is broken by sin. And perhaps you are putting all of your eggs in the basket of the world. You're trusting in the world to satisfy you, to make you feel like you're significant. But you're putting all your eggs in a broken basket. There's no water in this well. There's no rain in these clouds. And you yourself are a sinner. This is the message of the Gospel. You're a sinner. And you've offended your Creator. And because of your offense... You are condemned to spend eternity in a place of eternal torment called hell. Now, I don't know. I don't think most people like to hear that. And so a lot of times people just leave that out of the gospel. They just start with God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and they never address why that's so important. But we've got to tell the truth, and if we're going to tell the truth, we have to tell the whole truth. That's the bad news, but there's good news. God loved you so much that He sent His Son Jesus to assume and take upon Himself the condemnation and the punishment that you deserved so you will not be punished for your sins. But rather, if you put your faith and trust in Christ, you will spend eternity with Him enjoying a new heaven and a new earth forever. If you repent of your sins 
and believe that Jesus died, or I should say this, you believe Jesus lived, died, and was raised from the dead by God, you will live forever. And if you truly believe this, if you believe this message of the gospel, that Jesus is Lord, it will change you. Because that's the kind of thing, if you really believe Jesus is Lord and that you're not the Lord anymore, then your life is going to reflect the fact that you have a new Lord. It's not you anymore. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only will you receive a new heart and you'll receive a new nature, you will be indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, but it's also going to change the way that you think and the way that you feel and the way that you act. And remember, that's all we really do, isn't it? All we really do is think and feel and act. It's going to change everything. You'll surrender to the Lord if you believe that He is the Lord. That's the message of the gospel. But the way we convey that to people must be done in a loving way because we are commanded to speak to each other in love. We're to speak the truth in love. That's how we mature as a church. And that's how we patiently minister to others, always first in love. So our goal in sharing the gospel is to tell the truth of the gospel, to not hold any of the truth of the gospel back, but we want to share the gospel in such a way where people will be like Pendulette and they say, I don't like what he believes, but I sure liked him. Now, can you control that all the time? No. But as far as it depends upon you, we're going to love and we're going to speak the truth in love. That goes beyond saying nice things. Paul most likely intended more than just saying nice things or saying things in a loving or caring way. But he was also telling them that the way that they live is important. If we're going to talk, we've got to walk the talk. If you, if you look at the, the way that the word that Paul used when he, when we, that we translate speak the truth in love, there are scholars who say a better way of maybe translating that phrase is that we should be truthing it in love every day. That we should be truthing it in love in front of each other. The truth matters. Our loving people matters. This is what we've been commanded to do. And, if I, and that's how disciple-making will take place. You know, we, we go to conferences. We read books and books and books about this. And yes, there are techniques and things that we can do. We can learn best practices, all those sorts of things. But maturity, according to this verse, is pretty simple. We don't want to be tossed to and fro by the waves of doctrine that's not true. And Paul's giving us a simple play to run. It's almost like it's fourth down and in inches, and we, everybody knows what's going to happen. There's one play. You give it to your big fullback and he, or running back, and he just runs through the line. This play is very simple. We should all know it by now. You speak the truth in love, and you grow in maturity because true speaking of the gospel corrects error. When we speak the truth in love, we console one another. We strengthen one another. We correct one another through the gospel. And so it builds us up as individuals. So it builds us up as a community of faith. Then we see in the rest of verses 15 and 16 what happens when we speak the truth in love. How this maturity is described by the apostle. We are to grow up in every way. I like those words, grow up. You know? Those are good words to underline. That's the goal. We want to grow up. We want to mature in, every, in how many ways? Every way. Into Him who is the head, into Christ, 
from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so it builds itself up in love. There's one of those really long sentences that you've kind of got to take apart. But here's what we see happening in 15, uh, at the end of 15 and in the verse uh, 16. First, we see an illustration of the head and the body, Christ and the church. When we speak the love, uh, excuse me, when we speak the, speak the love, we speak the truth in love, we mature, we grow up, and we're lacking nothing because we're maturing in every single way into Christ. And that's a weird way to put it. Uh, he's basically saying we're growing into Christ. So for an illustration, have, you remember when you go shopping with your mom and she would just see a great deal? And she'd be like, okay, we got to buy this for later. And so you would buy uh, shoes or maybe a jacket or an Easter outfit. It was way too big for you, but you knew you were going to grow into it. And we're growing into Christ, aren't we? We're, we're growing and we're thinking about the future. We've got the future in mind that we are going to grow and mature into the head who is Christ. And if you look at the end of the verse, it says that Christ makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The key metric here is love. It's not love uh, divorced from the truth. Those go hand in hand. But, a f- but fully vested and mature in the truth and fully vested and mature in love. That's how we gauge our maturity. How committed am I to the truth? And also, how committed am I to love? Christ is the source of our growth. And here's how verse 16 explains it. There's two ways you can look in that verse 16 and you can see two ways that the members of the body are described. The first one, in my translation, says joint. So we're described as joints. That could be tendon, ligament, muscle. Uh, There's different ways that could be translated. And then, does anybody see what the second one is? We're called parts. We're called joints and we're called parts. Okay? So why use these two words? Why use the word joint and part? What is the apostle showing us here? What is he showing the Ephesian church? He says, you guys are connected. The church, we're connected. As we grow as a church and as individuals, we're connected to Christ because, remember, we're growing into it. We're growing into Jesus. We're growing into the head. But we're also connected to each other. In other words, you and I aren't just parts out there like pieces of a puzzle that are just thrown all over the place. We're connected parts. We're put together. And the way that the love of Christ gets from one part to the next part is because each part is connected to the others. Each part is depending. It says when every part's working properly, that means every part is dependent upon the other parts doing their work. What is that work? Telling the truth. Loving. And so to tell the truth and to love and to grow and to be connected to Jesus, this is how you grow as a believer. This is how we grow as a church. I thought about this verse yesterday when I was watching the vans and I was sitting there at this band contest all day long and I knew I needed to be writing my sermon, but here I was at the band contest and they were taking their sweet time. Uh, <laughs> and we watched some amazing bands. You know, we were the only 2A band that was there. You know, so uh, there were a couple of 3A bands. I think there may, maybe one 3A band. And then there were 4A, but a lot of 5A and 6A bands. And they came with elaborate props. I don't know if you've ever seen what one of these high schools that has thousands of students in it, the type of show that they put on the field for halftime now. 
They go through, it's an elaborate extravaganza for eight minutes of music. But it's amazing. They have stages and props and backdrops and all these different things. But they only have about three minutes to get all that stuff on the field. And I think they have even less time to pull it all off. And so I was watching them as they came in. And they would stand there in the end zone. And they were watching the timer as it was about to start. And their time to, to go on the field and set everything else uh, up was, and they just had a limited amount of time or you'd be disqualified. <clears throat> so I watched them in the end zone. That number would hit zero or whatever it was, three and a half minutes. And then they would start moving. And there were, everyone had a part. Uh, there was so, only so much time, and they knew it, and they had to get the sound equipment and the props, but everybody was doing their part to, tear, to take, uh, set it up and then to take it down. The color guard members, the band members, the crew members, there were even parents that had jobs. One, I saw one, one band, the parents held the hats. The, the, I guess it was like if your son was the drum major, you held his hat. And, but everybody had even the smallest part but without everybody doing even the smallest part, the show would not go on. Some had big jobs like tuning the band to the same pitch. Others were making sure microphones were plugged in. But everybody played a part to get it done in the short amount of time that they have. Here's what we need to remember. We've only got a short time. The, the window of ministry that each of us has, it's not a long window. We think, oh, we've got all kinds of time. We don't. Our window of influence... It may be large, it may be small, but it will close. And so we want to be mature. We want this body to be mature. And here's the hard thing about it. For me to become the mature Christian that I need to be, I need you. And for you to become the mature Christian that you want to be, you need everybody too. We all have to have each other. Because every part's got to work properly. Every part's got to do its part. And we've all got to be joined together. That means all of us in maturing are depending on all of us to speak the truth in love wherever we are called to do that. And the second part of the sermon will go quickly. 1 Thessalonians, if you'll turn over there to 1 Thessalonians. What are the kinds of things that a mature church does? What does speaking the truth in love look like? Well, the Thessalonian church needed to hear that. And so Paul described it to them in one of his early letters here to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. The Apostle Paul says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 14 demonstrate to us that the local church is called to persevere over time, meeting the basic needs of people's lives, especially those who are failing to thrive, those who are struggling in the most basic aspects of life and spirituality. We've got to be patient with one another. We've got to be patient as we meet each other's needs. This is near the close of the letter of 1 Thessalonians. And he's urging them, in light of everything that he said, and they've got some problems there, They've got some people that are disruptive. They've got some people that aren't working. They've got some people that are growing weary. And he says, hey, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. Now, you could take that little verse right there and try to live that out, and it would take the rest of your life, wouldn't it? So we don't know exactly what the problem was. The idle were either, you could, you could translate that word to be disruptive. 
So you might have had people that were being disruptive, or you could translate that word idle. There were people in the church who were not working. And their not working was causing a disruption because they weren't pulling their own weight. The church was having to meet their needs, and they weren't able to minister properly to those who truly needed their needs met. Okay? They were creating needs for the church to meet that they could meet themselves. And situations like that arise in church life sometimes where we need to admonish one another. And we want to make sure that we approve the things that Scripture approves, that we disapprove of the th- things that Scripture disapproves. That mainly takes place as we come to Sunday school each week, as we come to hear the pulpit ministry each week. But sometimes there are specific individuals that you have a relationship with, and you can speak into their life. And you can say, hey, I think this is becoming a problem. And remember, you're going to be truthing it in love there. You're going to be speaking the truth in love. And we can address those issues that are being caused by somebody that perhaps is being disruptive or perhaps is being idle. Paul also says to the faint-hearted that they need to be encouraged. There are those who need encouragement to persevere in the Christian faith. Maybe you're here today and you're one of those people. I'm definitely one of those people. I need to be encouraged to keep going. That means, faint-hearted means the small of soul, literally. And I know, I I see some people that are so strong in their faith, and and I think, I wish I had a big faith like that. I wish I could do that. But Paul, thankfully, tells the church there to minister to those who are faint-hearted. Paul's concern for those in the community that might be struggling with doubts and fears because these Christians were encountering all sorts of new persecutions as new believers. And he says, encourage them. Comfort them in the way you would encourage someone who's grieving. Now this requires a different tact, doesn't it? You've got to be gentle with someone that's faint-hearted. You've got to have a different tone, perhaps, than one who's being disruptive or being idle. Sometimes people that are being idle or disruptive, they have great confidence in their waywardness. And those who are faint-hearted are often greatly distressed by the way that they feel. They feel like they're a failure. F.F. Bruce says, with encouragement, those who are faint-hearted can be reminded that everyone in the body can expect to make a positive contribution towards its health and maturity. You may think, well, I'm one of those that needs a lot of encouragement. Well, my encouragement to you today is remember, everybody can make a difference. Everybody can be a part of what God is doing here at this church. The third exhortation is in verse 5, excuse me, in verse 5, 14, is to help the weak. There's a theologian uh, that says that weak in this instance doesn't refer to the sick or to those who have strong convictions about eating or drinking, but it refers to weak people the kind of weak people that Jesus attracted. Weak meaning powerless in the eyes of the world. To help the weak, to help the ones who are marginalized by everyone else. There are some people in our our midst and some people that a church encounters and it's easy to cast them away. We say, oh, they have no influence. They have nothing to contribute. They're insignificant. Now, we would never say that out loud, but that's a sin that we sin against people. And we say, well, they can't do anything but take. They'll never give. This happens to to us as we think through things socially, sometimes as we think through economic concerns. But there are many ways that powerlessness can uh, manifest in a church. Some people are powerless over 
an addiction. Some people are powerless over against a particular sin in their life. It's a matter of fact that in our church there will always be people who are weak and who require more support from those in the body because they just have a hard time maintaining. Maybe it's a family relationship. Maybe they have a hard time uh, earning a, a living. And this ministry cannot be left undone. And it cannot be underrated in its effect for the kingdom. It is good, Leon Morris says, I actually heard Leon Morris, the theologian, I was actually in the room with Leon Morris once in Washington, D.C. The guy is brilliant. He said this, he said, it's good for weak souls to know that there are others who are with them, who will cleave to them in the difficult moment and who will not forsake them. That's what we're called to be. This calls, according to one writer, for a different attitude among the members of the church. A different attitude than anybody else in the whole world has. We're going to remember as a church that Jesus had a soft spot for hurting people. And we need to have a soft spot too if we're going to be like Jesus. And then finally, what does Paul say there at the end of verse 14? He says, be patient with them all. That applies to everyone in the congregation, especially those who are struggling. But we have to all be patient with one another. Remember, being patient is loving. We say that God's love is demonstrated in His patience with us. As He is patient to not bring the world to its culmination, that more people might repent and come into the kingdom. That's an aspect of God's love. When we're patient, that's a godly, loving quality. What do each of these, for maybe turn to think, what is the application of such a short verse? How do we apply a verse like that and walk out of here with something to hang on to? You know, such an interesting verse of, of, of admonishing and encouraging and helping and being patient. These commands in this verse assume that in a church there will be constant, meaningful contact taking place all the time between the members. When we know each other and we're sharing a common life of discipleship, Sin will always be exposed. If you hang out with someone long enough, you will determine they're a sinner. You know, we tend to put people on a pedestal. And the only way people stay on a pedestal is you never get near them. But if you get near them, you realize, oh my gosh, this person's worse than I am. No, no, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> you'll, say, you'll say, we're both awful. <laughs> we got to have that discussion about Jonah, didn't we? You know, when you really read what Jonah was thinking, it really knocks the shine off of being a prophet, doesn't it? I just want to die. God, why do you love people? You know? But we learn that people are like us. We learn that we're all sinners. So if we are having contact with one another enough, and we're getting to know one another, and we're discipling one another, sin will always be exposed. And sin always requires attention. So the idle and the faint-hearted and the weak and everyone it will always be a concern. People who need patience will always be a concern in a healthy church. Issues of disobedience must be confronted head-on but always in a spirit of love and always with great, great patience. Don't give up on people. Remember, God doesn't give up on them. Don't give up on them. When a church commits to caring for all kinds of people, it will attract those who may be tempted to cling to the church to meet daily needs. And that might be exhausting. But thank God that He brings people into our orbit. People that are poor and weak just may be in different ways that you're poor or weak. But we keep persevering. So we say, well, they're just taking advantage. Keep persevering. Keep loving. 
Keep being patient. You don't know what God is up to. This is how a mature church and a ministering church approach that ministry of disciple-making that Jesus has given us. It's just little things, little bitty things that add up to one great big thing. But that obedience and that careful uh, loving of people, it just always happens in just little bitty chunks, just one bite at a time. Nobody else notices these things. But over time, just like those pictures in that album, over time, if you look at you know, the kids whenever they're there in 2006 and you look at them today, my, how they've grown. And maybe one day we can look back on our church in several years and if we've determined we're going to improve in this area, we're going to work hard to be patient and loving and truthful in this area, we can see ways that we have grown. And we can look back and say to one another, look how far God has brought us. We can rejoice in His goodness and in His faithfulness to complete the good work that He began in us and in the good work that He began in this church 124 years ago.